Well, this morning, we're going to start into a, a new series here in, in, in this service. It's going to take us through the summer months, and we're going to jump right into the text of that this morning. I want to use that to set up this series for us, and then I'm going to kind of explain why we're doing this series and, and what we're going to see in the series and what I'm aiming for us to get as a result of this series as we hear God speak to us through these next several months. The title of our new series we're starting today is simply Exodus. Exodus. And if you want to take a guess where we'll be in the Bible with the series of, of Exodus, if you're, if you're guessing the second book of the Bible that's titled Exodus, you are right. Good job. So if you thought that, grab your Bible, turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to look at the text there in just a second. If you grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 53. If you want to use one of those Bibles, make it a little easier for you to get there. The title of the first message in this series that we're going to have uh, today is going to begin in the beginning of the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 1, and the title is, What Was Written? What Was Written? So let's set the stage for this series in the book of Exodus by looking at Exodus first, and then let me explain what we're going to be doing in this series on Exodus towards the end. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each with his household was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zubulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel grew fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8. Now... There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now these verses here at the beginning of the book of Exodus set the stage for the reader to enter into what really is this truly epic narrative that we're going to get to explore. The book starts out by saying, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. That's how you're reading that there. If you have the ESV in your own personal translation or using a pew Bible, those are the words that you see. But actually, in the Hebrew, the language that Moses originally wrote this book in, there's another word there. There's a conjunction that actually starts before the word these right there that we see, a conjunction that would best be translated into English as now or and. The ESV doesn't render the word there for us because it reads a little easier this way, but some English translations put it in there, and it's helpful to see. So if you look at the New American Standard Bible or the NET Bible or the King James Bible, you'll see it all. they all start rendering that conjunction for us, the word now. And I think it's actually an important word because that word now actually helps us understand what's being said here. You can see the point without it, but with it, it makes very clear that we're picking up right in the middle of a story, right? So there's assumptions here that are being made right in these first few verses. There's names that are given that you kind of get the feeling one should know. And there's locations mentioned here that you feel like maybe we've already supposed to have heard about. It starts out in the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 1, with this idea of we're in the middle of a story. It's kind of like if you were to sit down and watch The Two Towers, if you're familiar with that movie, it's the second film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. In 2002, Peter Jackson released his version of that. And if that was the first time you entered into the Lord of the Rings 
adventure. You try to recall how that film opens. There's this very scenic panoramic view kind of flying over these snowy mountains. There's that beautiful, incredible musical score that starts out kind of slow. And then it starts to build as you get closer to the mountains and the camera starts heading down to the mountains and then goes inside the mountains. And all of a sudden you're in this dark room. There's a narrow bridge over a big cavern. There's some old guy wearing gray with a sword and a staff and he's yelling and there's this big thing made of darkness and fire and there's this battle going on and we just right there enter into the middle of it. For people that entered into the Lord of the Rings adventure with the second film, having never read the book or, or seen the first film, you might be a little confused as to what's happening here. We started out in the air with snow and now here we are underground in this big cavern, some fights going on. And if that's the first moment you get on screen, you're probably going to be a little bit confused. I mean, you might think I kind of like the, the old guy. He looks kind, so I'm rooting for him, and the big fiery thing looks like a demon, so I don't think I'm on that guy's side, right? But you don't quite have the same emotional connection to it as those of us who have read the books or those of who saw the first movie, that when you see this battle taking place that you jump right into the middle of, and all of a sudden, the old guy falls, and he has to go down the deep, deep cavern. There's this emotional moment. For those of us who know what's happening, it's heartbreaking. We know that's Gandalf the Grey fighting the Balrog in the mines of Moria. And this is a climactic moment. And we get that. But for those of us who'd never seen it before, it's, well, that's kind of sad. Those people that, that are over there seem really broke up about it. But we're still trying to figure out what's going on, right? If you know the story, you know how important it is, but if you're just entering in for the first time, you might be a little bit lost. And in some ways, that's kind of the situation we have here in the book of Exodus. See, if you, just, if you were to just open your Bible, have no concept of what the first chapter, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, was about, and you just go into the second one, you open up, and for some reason you decide, page 53, I'm going to start there in the book, well, you're starting on the second part of a story that's already been going on. And you might be a little bit lost if you haven't ever heard what's happened before. But the book of Exodus is actually part of this bigger story that's recorded. It's part of really a bigger narrative that's told over the course of the first five books of the Bible. We call the first five books of the Bible the Pentateuch, which literally means book of five, which makes sense because there's five books telling this one cohesive story at the beginning of the Bible. So understanding how Exodus is part of something much bigger helps us set up the way to approach the book of Exodus and get the most out of it, to realize this is something that's a bigger story that we're going to need to know a little bit about what's happened before to understand some of the significance that's there. The book starts out giving us these names and locations, and it's done in a way that almost assumes the reader surely already has read the first part and knows what we're talking about. But we can start into the book of Exodus without doing a series in the book of Genesis first because of the transition that's made right here at the start. So yes, it mentions and alludes to the story and lets us know this is really part two. Go back and read the first part if you haven't done that. But we can start right here because of the transition that's made in the text itself. Look there at verse six where we realize very quickly we're going to move beyond the names that are mentioned here in the first few verses. Exodus 1.6 tells us, after giving us a list of names, then Joseph and all his brothers that we just read of, and all that generation, they died. So, okay, this is part of something bigger, and there's some stories that happened before, but we're told here in verse 6, well, now they're dead. <laughs> so we're going to move on to something in the story beyond them. So the story of Joseph 
it really is important for us to know. And, and this morning, to set us up into the book of Exodus, I, I want us to go back and just get a little bit of the story of Joseph so we have some context for what we're going to see in the coming weeks. And this is a, it's a powerful story. If you've never heard the story of Joseph, you, you really need to hear it in its entirety. It's told in the book of Genesis over the course of 13 chapters. It's a very lengthy account of his life. Go read Genesis 37 to 50. All the way to the end of the book, Joseph's the central figure of that story that's being told. And his life is the immediate background to these events. And so what we need to know is a little bit about his story to help us enjoy and understand Exodus better. But just like knowing who Gandalf is makes his death so much more meaningful, understanding Joseph makes the story of Exodus so much more meaningful. So Joseph's story, like I said, it's amazing, and I'm going to risk simplifying it a little too much to give you a background on that. Obviously, with 13 chapters of the Bible, we could spend a long time talking about Joseph's story. But back in the book of Genesis, the, the book of beginnings, which is a good title for the first book of that five-book series, right? They tell the story of Joseph, and here's what we learn about Joseph. Joseph is the son of a man named Jacob. Jacob is the son of a man named Isaac, and Isaac was the son of a man named Abraham. And each of those names are very important in the story of Joseph's life and the story of Genesis is being unfolded. This family line that starts with Abraham and then goes down all the way to Joseph here is part of the family that's been chosen by God for a very special purpose, to uniquely be his people and to be used by God to bless the entire world. God had singled Abraham out from all the people on the earth and made incredible promises to Abraham, promises that he would bless Abraham promises that he would give Abraham this land for his family as their inheritance and their own. He even included an amazing promise to Abraham about how far into the future and what his family lineage would look like. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, if we go all the way back to Abraham and what he has been told by God, we would read this. God brought Abraham outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. I mean, that's a pretty incredible promise that's made by God to this man, Abraham, right? And this promise is passed on from Abraham to his son Isaac and from Isaac to his son Jacob and all the way to Joseph. When we meet him in the story, Joseph's one of the sons of Jacob. He's actually the favorite son of Jacob, but he's deeply hated by his brothers because he's the favorite, right? If you're a parent, you know what that's like. Or if you were a kid who wasn't the favorite <laughs> in your own home, you know what that might be like. Yeah. They hate, they hate Joseph so much, these sons of Jacob, that they actually decide to kill him, but kind of chicken out at the last moment because one of the brothers is like, look, we really shouldn't kill him. He's our brother. Let's just, let's just sell him into slavery. Like, you may have problems with your siblings, but none of you have been say, sold into slavery, right? And so Joseph is, he's sold into slavery. He's taken all the way to Egypt, away from the land of his family. His father's told, hey, your youngest son, he's dead. He's gone. So there's, there's all this drama that's occurring there in the family, but what happens in Joseph's life is not just, well, he got a bad hand. He's slave, Egypt, whew, that's rough. Actually, he goes to Egypt, serves as a slave, but uh, by the hand of God, by the power of God at work, in a way that only God could do, he goes from being a slave in prison to being second in command under the king of Egypt. Nobody has more authority than him. He's in charge of everything. And it's an amazing, amazing work that God does in his life. And God actually uses Joseph to save those brothers who sold him into slavery, to save his father who thought for years that he was dead, and their whole family. It's through Joseph and his provision during a time of famine that this line is endured. The promises of God are kept alive by the work of Joseph and how God used him. 
So from the, the first point we meet Abraham, this guy back in, in Genesis, to the end of the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph, this special family's been moved from this land that they were in at Abraham's time to a new land, and they've grown from just two people, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, in Genesis 15, to now being a little bit larger family. There's 70 people that are descendants of Abraham's family. But by the time you get to the end of Genesis with that number of people, you have to realize if you're reading the story and you've heard promises like this, well, Genesis can't end where it ends. With 70 people in this land away from the land that God had said would be their own? I mean, I don't know if you've been outside lately on a clear night and looked up at the stars. One of the great things about living out where we live is we can actually go see those stars outside, right? So if you've ever been outside on a clear night and looked up at the stars, if you haven't been able to recently, hopefully summer will be here soon. We'll have lots of good chances for that. But if you go outside on a good clear night and you look up at the stars and you start to count them, you're going to realize pretty quickly there's more than 70 of them up there, right? And if you've ever gotten the opportunity to look through a telescope you can see even more, things that you just can't see standing in the field looking up. There are lots and lots of stars up there in this galaxy. Looking up the night sky would tell us that's true. According to the European Space Agency, they say this, astronomers estimate there are about 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone, where we are. And outside of that, there are millions upon millions of other galaxies also. <laughs> I love this line from the European Space Agency. It has been said that counting the stars in the universe is like trying to count the number of sand grains on a beach on Earth. Now I find that to be really funny that this is you know, a secular scientific agency putting out a statement like this and they, they cite certain PhDs who are so brilliant and have everything figured out as if they've got this brilliant analogy that no one's ever thought of. And I'm laughing because that's actually exactly what God had told Abraham in the scripture thousands of years ago. Genesis 22, 17, when God's reminding and restating his promise to Abraham, he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So yes, trying to count the stars that exist in the universe is like trying to count the sand on the seashore, but it doesn't take brilliant PhDs to tell us that. God had already said that was true in the scripture. So Genesis ends with the story of Joseph and his death and 70 people that now exist, they've moved to Egypt, but clearly Genesis isn't a completed story because these promises that God has made can't be fulfilled with just 70 people, right? So as we enter into the book of Exodus, we have to see it as the next part of this grand narrative that's already been unfolding in the Bible. And we need to note how it closes out that section that Genesis had really focused on and moves us into a new section, but all of it's tied together, and we have to keep that in mind, and we'll see that as we go through our series together. So notice how the transition is made. There again in verse 6 and 7 of Exodus chapter 1. So then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So if the story was just all about Joseph, if he was really the main figure, he got 13 chapters, that's quite a bit. If he was who it was all about, when Joseph died, we'd expect it to say, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, the end. But it doesn't. The story continues on. The people of Israel began to increase. And this amazing growth, this amazing increase that's taking place here, it's mentioned because the Bible's really not about any individual human person we would encounter in it. 
The, the book of Exodus even opens to, to intentionally transition us away from thinking the books about Joseph or any of the other names that we've mentioned. Exodus 1.8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So Exodus is a new era. It's connected to Genesis, but it's a new era. It's continuing to reveal this great story, but moving us forward in it. Despite those 13 chapters that Joseph gets, the amazing way that God uses him, the story's not really about him because it doesn't take too long until a new king arises in Egypt and he doesn't even know who Joseph was. Just as Genesis isn't really about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph, Exodus is not really about any individual personally. This is not the story just of Moses. This isn't the story of Aaron or Pharaoh. We'll see them, and we'll see the parts they play in this great story as we move forward, but it's really not about them. It's about someone far greater than all these mortal men who lived and died. Even with Joseph's death, which is the final thing that Genesis recounts, if you look back there in Genesis 50, the last three verses of it, Joseph, right before he dies, says to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Right at the point of his death, Joseph himself recognizes his part in the story is about over. But the story itself is not over. He tells them, God will bring you up out of this land. He will fulfill the promises he has made to our forefathers. Genesis ends with Joseph's death, but the last words here in these last three verses tell us to expect to be able to turn the page and start a new chapter with the story continuing, which is what Exodus is. See, one of the challenges we face in reading the Old Testament is this temptation to read with too much focus on the individual people we find in there. To kind of read these the way we would read the great tales of heroes of old, like King Arthur's Knights, right? If you have a copy of that, you can open it up, and each chapter tells of an exploit of King Arthur or one of his men, and they're, they're all kind of loosely connected, but they don't really make a lot of sense. It's not coherent, chronological, one big story being told. They're just these amazing tales that are kind of thrilling adventures to read a few pages about. If you read the Bible that way, you're reading the Bible completely wrong. See, the whole point of the Bible is not about any of these individuals or their accomplishments. The point of the scriptures is that this is the story of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. The book's not really about them. It's about the God over them, the God they worship. God's the real hero and focus of the story of Scripture. It's all about really what God is doing and what he is saying and how he's revealing himself. The texts are really all about him. And so what I believe for us as Christians is that we will really benefit from seeing God at work, how he reveals himself and his character and his power through the story in Exodus, because today we're still part of the grand story of God that's unfolding. You and I are part of God's story that's unfolding. The story that started in Genesis goes all the way through Exodus and then through the judges and through the times of the kings and the prophets and all the Old Testament era. And the story continues to be picked up in the New Testament area with the Gospels telling us of Jesus' coming and his life and ministry and death. And it goes through the book of Acts and how the church is founded and grows and begins to spread all around the world. And we read the letters that were being produced at that time in the New Testament era. And then that story continues from there. It doesn't end with the last page of the Bible. The story continues 
through the Middle Ages, through the Reformation, through the Great Awakenings, all the way to right now where the story is still unfolding through you and I, the people of God, and how he's working through us and in this world still today. So the question, though, specifically is why study Exodus right now? Like, okay, part of a big story, we get that. It's at the start. It's good to go back and kind of see things a long time. But, but why right now? Why? You might be thinking, why don't we do a topical series on, on issues that are prevalent today? Why, why don't we just take some time and really try to focus on the cultural moment we find ourselves in? Why, why don't we look at this or look at that? You might have things that are going on in your life, and you think, I would really love a sermon series on this thing. So why do you feel, Pastor, that going through the book of Exodus is what this church needs right now, what's best for us right now? Well, that's what I want to answer, and I want it to tie all together for us as I explain why we're going to be in the book of Exodus throughout the summer in this series. When I began preaching, heading into pastoral ministry, I had convictions that began to develop in me as I studied the Bible to find out what it is I was supposed to be doing. Like I wanted to give my life to this calling, to be a pastor and a preacher, and so I needed to have a vision for what that looked like, and I needed to have a framework for how to work that out, and I wanted to get that from the Bible. And so that's what I did was I studied the scriptures to find out what is it that a pastor, a preacher, should be focused about doing. And one of the key texts I found that should be a key text for any faithful pastor or preacher who wants to obey the Bible and follow the biblical example comes from something Paul said of his own ministry that serves really as a model for us today. These are the words of Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 to 27. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The way this statement is laid out is pretty clear. There's a way to do this ministry. There's a way to go about preaching that's wrong, that will have judgment and creates problems if the result is not preaching the whole counsel of God, as Paul did. So back at the start of last year, kind of, talking about us specifically, this church specifically, I was praying a lot and trying to plan out the course of 2020. And one of the things I was really excited about doing before COVID hit and changed literally every single plan that I had made for the entire year, one thing I was really excited about was the opportunity to do this and take us through a longer series, to a larger section of the Old Testament to see clearly the whole counsel of God means the whole story of the scriptures. These 39 books that are in the front of the Bible aren't just the preface to the stuff we really should focus on in the New Testament. Like, there's a reason these are here, and there's good things for us to learn and hear from God through in these moments. And of course, it's not like the Old Testament is uh, somewhere that we've never spent any time as a church, right? Even in the last three years that I have been here, we've spent a good deal of time in the Old Testament. In 2019, we did a five-week series based out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. I think that was a really great series, really important for you to understand the role of parents and discipling and what that looks like. If you haven't heard those sermons, I encourage you to go on our podcast channel. You can find them. Go to YouTube. You can find that series there. Watch those. Almost every Advent season, we, we always come back into the Old Testament as well. We were looking at the sense of longing the, the people in the Old Testament had and how that connects with us and We've had a lot of standalone messages out of texts of the Old Testament, especially through COVID-19 and those live streams. If you go back and watch those, we talked from the Old Testament quite a bit. But we've never been able to do this longer study through a lengthier section of the Old Testament like we're doing right now. And I believe that it is really important for us to do this as Christians because we are called to be a people of the whole Bible, not just part of it. 
And that's really important for Christian people to understand how to read the first 39 books of the Bible in a Christian way, seeing the message God intends for us as his people to hear. And I believe that to be true. I believe these to be valuable and useful to us because of a text, another text that's really key to me, one that I hope is getting familiar to you based on my preaching to you and kind of the tenor of how I have referenced it so often. The words of 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17 tell us this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. This is Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, trying to instruct him how to be a good pastor. Remember, What you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And in this text, I hope all of you know, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This Belief is what we need to get deep down into our souls, to really embed into our minds and to shape our patterns of thinking in this world, to understand what we have in the Bible here and what the result of knowing it and being shaped by this book really means. I talk about this often because the Bible and our belief about the Bible really is central to the health of our faith. If you and I do not actively and truly believe that the scriptures are fully infallible, inerrant, sufficient, literally breathed out word of God, if you don't believe all of that to be true, your faith is at real risk. To just view the Bible as a good book, as an important part of tradition, it's not enough. To just think that these are a collection of stories or the religious writings of people as they thought about God years past, that's erroneous. To put other things on the same level as these 66 books put together in the one book of the Bible that we have here is to move ourselves to very unstable and dangerous grounds. You and I, if we're going to remain healthy, faithful Christians, have to have a high view of the Bible that remains uncompromised, especially in our ever-shifting culture. And we have to actually so believe the confession we make about what the Bible is that we let it impact how we approach the Bible and how the Bible shapes our lives and how we engage with the word of God. We have to really believe what verse 16 says there, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That means there's good use for us in this. There's something for you and I to benefit from in all of the scriptures. Listen, there are so many attacks today upon the Bible that you and I have to guard against. We don't live in a neutral time. There are people openly, hostily antagonistic to our faith and to the scriptures themselves. And one of the things that's particularly deadly and very popular right now that I want to warn us against and I want to set a good example to fight against through this series is there's a temptation for some Christians to devalue and to functionally decanonize the Old Testament. To think, well, we're Christians and Jesus shows up in the gospel, so let's just kind of focus on the last part of the book because that is a little easier for us to grasp. And so maybe we wouldn't say we don't believe in the Old Testament. Like, yeah, sure, we're fine for it to be bound in there, but we don't spend the time over there that we would in the New Testament. And I think if we do that, we're making a deadly mistake. 
See, this devaluing and this attempt to attack the Old Testament, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's been a fight that's happened in academic circles for quite a long time. But what I'm concerned about is not so much what happens in the academy and the PhDs and the doctorates who are all arguing in books against one another. What I'm concerned about is the local church and how we as local Christians are viewing these things. And what scares me is that it's becoming more and more popular at the popular level in churches like ours to devalue the Old Testament. And when we do that, what we're doing, we need to understand clearly, if you, if you reject the Old Testament, if you don't view it as breathed out by God and profitable in all of the ways that the New Testament is, that's laid out right there, then you are rejecting the historical view of Christianity. You're rejecting the view of the Puritans, of the Reformers, of the early church fathers, of the apostles, and of Jesus himself. And as a Christian, one who claims to follow Jesus, if you don't hold his view of Scripture, you are not following Jesus. The Old Testament is valuable and useful to us. But today there are a lot of teachers teaching at a very popular level that we don't need to really worry about what's going on in the first 39 books. We need to just focus on the latter part. So one of the names that's big in this is Andy Stanley. He's the pastor of North Point, um, North Point Church out near Atlanta. Wide audience of people listen to him. He's an excellent communicator. I get it. But where he's gone very, very wrong, and where it's very, very dangerous for us to adopt his views, is in the sermons he's preaching now and in the series of books that he's writing that are arguing things like we need to, his word, unhitch from the Old Testament. We need to, he writes, quote, stop our habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. He thinks all we really need to do is focus on the Gospels and the New Testament letters. That's enough. Don't worry about the first 39 just focus on the last part. Listen, that's not a view that we can take if we are going to actually believe what the Bible tells us about itself. If we actually believe that verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, to be true, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, then we can't decide to unhitch from part of it because it's a little harder to wrestle with. It's a little different culture. In fact, I would argue this passage in 2 Timothy 3 actually completely refutes the position that Stanley and others like him hold. When Paul tells Timothy here in this passage, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and from how, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the sacred writings he's talking about are the Old Testament text in particular. The New Testament text had been written. Paul's writing that letter to 2 Timothy, which is scripture, but that's not widely circulated, right? Timothy didn't grow up with a letter. Like Paul wrote that at a moment. So the scriptures he had access to were the Old Testament scriptures. He heard his mother and grandmother, who were Jewish women who had become Christians, teach him about the way to Christ from the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures point us to Jesus as well. Not just the New Testament. He's not just the point looking back from the New Testament. He's the point of looking forward from the Old. In the book of Romans, Paul makes the point so sharp and clear for us. This is why you and I should understand the value and the purpose of the Old Testament and jump into studies like this in the Old Testament. It's because in Romans 15.4, Paul writes, For what was written in former days was written for our instruction. Our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Christians, the Old Testament is for us. And there's value in it. It was written to instruct us and teach us about our God, who he is more and more as we see his work in this grand story that's unfolding. The Old Testament in particular reveals incredible things about God, reveals to us, as we'll see in the book of Exodus, stories of God's sovereignty and his power 
power and his kindness and his holiness and his wisdom and his ability to work in and through all things and how he's worthy of worship from us no matter where we are, no matter what's happening around us. It reveals an incredibly beautiful picture of our God to us. We can see God's plan of redemption unfolding through this massive story that's taking place, a lot of it taking place through this Old Testament part of our Bible. This story covers so many different locations and so many different generations and so many incredible acts of God along the way. In fact, it's actually here in the book of Exodus, all the way back in the second book of the Bible, that we're going to find the term salvation and redemption first used. In the book of Exodus, we will see as we go through this study amazing foreshadows of Christ's ministry and life. We'll come to realize the deep need that every one of us has for a Savior. We're going to see how God's power is so much greater than everything else. We're going to see God clearly demonstrate that he alone is the true God. There's no one like him. He is not one among many. He alone is God. What was written in former days was written for our instruction. And we believe that to be true. I believe that to be true. So through the summer, we will study this book of Exodus to learn, to benefit, to profit from what has been written for us. So we're going to walk through the story of the book of Exodus, actually not covering the entire book of Exodus. We're going to go about halfway through in this series. And we're not going to do this quite the way we've done some of our other book studies. We're not going to go verse by verse reading it all the way through like we've done with the two New Testament letters or the book of Acts where we got about halfway through there as well. I'm going to summarize sections as we go, and we're going to focus in on some key texts week by week. But over the next 20 weeks, we're going to cover about 20 chapters of the book of Exodus. So because I'm not going to read every single word of every single verse to you in that, I really do want to encourage you, if you have not been using our Bible reading plan, you should consider picking one of those up, at least to get you through the book of Exodus. This coming week, actually, over the next five days, if you're on pace with the plan, you would actually be finishing up the book of Exodus. If you have not read through the book of Exodus, I want to encourage you to go over to the Resource Center counter. There's still a bunch of copies of page one on there. Look at the, about the middle of week 10 starts Exodus. And over the course of several weeks, just reading the assigned chapters, you would read through the entire book. And you'll get a whole picture of the whole big story that unfolds that we're going to walk through throughout the summer. Next week actually ends that copy, that page one. We'll get to the end of what I had printed on there. And so next week we'll have page two out at the resource counter and you'll be able to grab that and kind of continue to read through there. Hopefully that's because you've completed Genesis Nexus. But if you haven't, then grab that and read through that and get started today. Over the next several months, we're going to dig into this story because this story and the events that happened in the Exodus really are one of the most important moments in Old Testament history altogether. What happens here actually shapes the people of Israel in such a profound way that it would be like you and I talking about the cross of Christ. It was so central to their identity for so much of the history of God's people. We need to understand that. And one of the key things we're going to see throughout this series is this. You and I, we are no better than the members of the family of Abraham. We have sins that are just as bad as their sins. And if you've read anything in Genesis about their lives, you realize these are not the amazing, upstanding, moral figures that are just better than everyone else, hence they get the stories. They are actually really broken, sinful people that were kind of amazing that God would have anything to do with them at all, right? And you and I, we're just like that. We don't deserve to be chosen 
by God to be part of his family or to be saved by his power. But the book of Exodus will reveal to you and I today right now that the God who chose to use and save sinners like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob also chooses to save and use sinners like you and I today. And that should cause us to worship our God and glorify him and gain such great insight from it. The God whose nature is revealed in powerful, personal ways throughout the book of Exodus is the God who's still just as powerful and personal with his people, you and I, today. So I really believe this book will be good for our souls. I believe it'll be good for our relationship with God. I believe it will even teach us how to live in a very difficult world as we look at those who are living in very difficult circumstances. Because the root issues that cause these difficulties of our world, they never change. And more importantly, our God, who led his people through difficult circumstances, he never changes. He's still powerful, he's still personal, he still saves, and his story is still ongoing. You and I, we're just a part of it today. So the worship team is going to come this morning, and they're going to lead us in a final song of response. They're going to give us this few moments that we have at the end of these services to to try and respond to the Lord, to think about what we've heard, to pray and talk to the Lord, to meet with him in this place before we leave and before we head out back into the world and all the things that we have to do. The story that we will see here in the book of Exodus, continuing from Genesis and really continuing all the way to today, in Exodus and like places in all of the Old Testament, are, we see these foreshadows of the coming of Christ. And the main difference between you and I and the believers in the book of Exodus is that we live with this great gift of being able to look back and see Christ. We see the full story, how he came and how he died and how he rose again. All the things that we just celebrated this last week, we know those things to be such amazing truths. And the people in the book of Exodus worship God passionately for who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. And you and I, we sit here today with so much more of a gift of knowledge of who God is and what he's done. We shouldn't let them out-worship us when we know the Christ they looked forward to has come and did do everything that was promised and foreshadowed. If you don't know this God personally, if you don't know Christ in a saving way, if you're not trusting in him to save you from your sins, then don't leave today without coming and and talking to me. Let me explain to you more fully who Jesus is and this story that is found in the book of Exodus. It all builds up to this one central character of Jesus Christ and his death on a cross and his empty tomb because he's alive today. Let me talk with you. I'd love to do that today. And if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you, respond to the Lord today in these moments. Ask him to open up your mind and your heart anew so that you would become excited and passionate about what we are about to see in the book of Exodus and what we've heard of today in this view of Scripture. Pray that the Lord would make that truly your view of Scripture as well. As we learn today to respond to who God is and worship him for all that he has done. I'm going to pray, and we'll have a chance to respond. These altars are open. I would love to pray with you if you have anything you want to pray about today. Would you join me in praying for the Lord to meet with us in these moments? Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for this incredibly great story that you are working out right now in history, the story that's begun so long ago on the pages of the Old Testament. Through this time of Exodus that we're about to study, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a great excitement to see your hand at work in past ages. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a great passion to be in your word and and learning from your word, seeing all of it, every bit of the scriptures as profitable to our lives right here and right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would start that work in us 
now. In these few moments, as we respond to you, and we lift our voices to sing, as we pray in this place, I pray, Lord, that you would draw very close to us, that we would know you are alive, you are at work, and that we would seek you to find out what it is you would have us do in your story that's unfolding right now. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.